Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Ryan. Oh, man. Who are you? I'm, I'm Andy Travis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what's with those two guys, anyway? Huh? What two guys? <laughs> Urban Wesley. What, uh, uh, nasty this morning and nice now? Yeah. Oh, come on, Andy, you've been around, huh? They were up for your job. Uh... Les wants an all-news and hog format. <laughs> on the other hand, Herbert liked an all-talk show format. I, personally, was hoping for... All Hawaiian. <laughs> what do you got in mind? Oh, I don't know. I haven't quite uh, decided yet. So, if you're on your way to work, you might want to take an umbrella. Or you might not. You're listening to the Johnny Caravella Show on WKRP in Cincinnati. And now it's time to listen to one of my personal favorites. It's the Hallelujah Tabernacle Choir with their beautiful rendition of You're Having My Baby. Hey, listen, I've been thinking. I want to go ahead and change the format today. Today? Sure. Just like that? Why not? Well, I don't have any records. Uh, now you do. Uh, listen, Andy, uh, it's been quite a while since I worked in a rock station. So? So, I think maybe you should look for somebody else. About 15 years younger. Oh, you're my man. Listen, I, I really appreciate it, I do. You can I, do it. Yeah, I don't know, I... I Just I, do it. Okay. Listen, you, you do mean now. Yes. <laughs> and you can say booger if you want to. <laughs> Well, it's goodbye to the elevator music. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> All right, Cincinnati, it is time for this town to get down. You got Johnny. Dr. Johnny Fever, and I am burning up in here. We are all in critical condition, babies. But you can tell me where it hurts. Because I got the healing prescription here from the big KRP musical medicine cabinet. Now, I am talking about your 50,000-watt intensive care unit, babies. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say, give it to me straight, doctor. I can take it. God, fellow babies. Booger! And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat! Again? Button up my sleeve! Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Das ist Jochen Maas, hallo. Und Sie hören Nostalgic Radio und Autos. Wunderbar.
listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, TantTalk1340.com, and you can see me live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. That's sparkling Clearwater for those of you who don't know that yet. But uh, anyway, yeah, don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, you can visit uh, NostalgicRadioAndCars.com which is our archive page, or some people refer to it as a podcast. At any rate, how you doing tonight, Tommy? Ooh, I'm just great, Robert. How you doing? Hanging in there. Another day, another day. Hey, listen, we got a very special guest coming on the show here, if everything goes according to schedule. And this gentleman will be calling us from Europa. Yeah, das ist, das stimmt. Es wird von einem Anruf aus uh, Europa kommen. Und es ist aus Belgien. Of course, I don't speak Flemish, but it's a call from Belgium. But anyway, so we're looking forward to having this gentleman on our show. Um, what do we do today? Hey, today, you know, you, know, you just never know. You know, there's a sixth sense about stuff. So today I just happened to be driving down, diddy bopping down the road, you know, which I diddy bop a lot. And uh, that's my favorite pastime is diddy bopping. And uh, I saw this old junk car laying alongside the road. Because I like junk cars. I'm a parts junkie, you know, wrecking our kind of guy, you know, so that's just the way it is. But anyway, so I won't give you any two details. But there was, I drove by, to, I can't explain, it's a sixth sense. But anyway, so here's this car. It's got this funky look to it, I'll just say. And um, I drove past it, and I thought, nah. Oh, yeah. Nah. Oh, yeah. A couple traffic lights later, I finally turned around. So uh, as I'm rolling around, and I rolled up to this beater I walked around and I thought hmm interesting I will say that I saw some interesting parts inside the car and I thought hmm that's kind of interesting there was a third pedal in there so I knew it was a stick there was a hole in the floor too now this car didn't ordinarily come with a hole in the floor usually came with a three in a tree so um, but somebody had modified it any rate so then actually I looked underneath and there was a Ford 9-inch under there, which I presume there would be. And then I proceeded to raise the hood, and there was a, a V8 under the hood, which I presumed there would be. And that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but it pays. You know, it's kind of like when I used to go to junkyards. Where was I? Uh, in Tampa one time. And I went to this junkyard off of uh, Limebaugh. I think the junkyard, parts of that junkyard are still there. And in the trunk of a car were some pretty rare parts. Didn't belong in that car, but they were in that car. So, you know, what happens is, is and, and those are the good old days. You know, you would, I would go to Gophers, for example, or Cofers, whatever it was called back in the day. And uh, I would find some interesting stuff. You know, I would always look through the cars. And no matter whether it was a Jaguar, whether or Jag, an old Jag, or Mercedes, or a MG, or a... Ford or Chevy or a truck or whatever. But you got to check everything, you know, because when they use the term knowledge is king, knowledge truly is king because, I mean, it's like my buddy Hank one time. He was walking through a junkyard in Arizona with all these who's who guys, Hank, if you're listening, and everybody was real sharp, you know, and on vintage, high-performance Ford stuff. Now, my background is primarily Ford, obviously, and, uh, and I'm pretty good at it. Some of these guys are better than me because um, you just don't know everything because you're not exposed to everything. But, you know, the guys from Detroit, they've seen a lot of pretty cool stuff because, you know, Detroit's where it's from. But at any rate, so he's walking in there and everybody goes past. And hanging right in plain view was a Boss 302 shaker base. Now, I know it doesn't mean anything to anybody in particular, but a Boss 302 with a shaker has a special uh, air cleaner housing with little notches on it or little cues on it to tell you that it was Boss 3. And then the snorkel was hanging on, which the Boss 3 2 snorkel is also unique to a 70 Boss 3 2. But everybody walked past it, all these guys that you read about in the magazines and see on TV. But Hank happened to notice it, and Hank bought it for like 15 bucks. It's a $1,500 piece. So, anyway, without further ado, we have our special guest calling in live from Belgium. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening. Well, first, let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman. He's a well-known photographer in the uh, automotive world. Um, he's also done some amazing photography on a number of publications as well as auctions. And he is now heading up a new magazine 
in Europe, and uh, it's called Tazio. And it's actually named in honor of a very well-known and prominent uh, golden era of racing Italian race car driver, Tazio Nuvolari. And I'm delighted to welcome the show this evening, Dirk Diega. Dirk, how are you? Hi, Robert. Good to meet you. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you. Now, you are from where originally? Are you Flemish? Are you da- uh, from Belgium? I'm indeed Belgium. I'm living in the Flemish area. Born and raised here. Okay. So give us a little bit of background on yourself. Um, I was reading your bio a little bit, and uh, you're a pretty interesting guy. So tell us a little bit about your background real quick. we got a long time here on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's easy. I've been basically self-employed as a photographer for the past, well, 12, 14 years now. Uh Uh-huh. Um, when I was in high school and uh, debating to go to college, I was debating should I do photography or should I do, well, back then IT, which was the logical choice. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're 18 years old, what do you know about being social, you know? You know, your passion, you follow your passion, and yours was cars, right? Well, the passion was cars, but the illogical part to me, like, uh, I wanted to do a good job. So I went for IT. Uh, oh, IT. For uh, a good job. Uh-huh. It turned out to be very boring. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, IT, you know. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, it was the 90s. What do you think? Uh, it was logical back then. So in the end, you did follow my passion, and I did switch to photography and into the cars. And the only thing I shoot and are busy with is cars. And especially classic cars, because let's face it, the new stuff, it's kind of boring. Yes. At least to me. All right, so was uh, was anybody in your family uh, involved in cars that had it influenced you as a child? Oh, both my parents. Both your parents? Yeah. Uh, before I was born, my dad was a racing car driver, well, local uh, local stuff in Belgium. Uh-huh. Uh, and my mom was actually a marshal because she, she refused to be sitting with the other woman in the paddock waiting for the boyfriend to come back from racing. Well, now, Belgium is well-known for probably one of the most notorious race circuits in Europe, the Spa Frankenchort. So, tell us a little bit. Have you been there? Uh, I learned to drive on there. Did you really? <laughs> well, back then when I got my learner's permit, it was still mostly public roads. Uh-huh. The track was back then public road, and about a year later, it became a full-time permanent track. So, uh, Radion, which is a track uh, corner you must uh, know, and probably have driven yourself if you've been here. Uh, back then, it was public road, so my dad taught me how to drive the ideal line on there. Oh, really? Well, no, unfortunately, I never went to Belgium. I came through Belgium, but I never went to Spa. I've been to Austria, and uh, and so I was at the Österreich Ring. I've driven past the Nürburgring. But I've never actually been on any European road courses. So, but in the '60s, I had I was living over there in early and through the '70s because my father used to travel back and forth. So, but um, the I've had some very famous race car drivers on my show: Brian Redman, Vic Elford, um, people like that, Sterling Moss, and they all rant and rave and talk about how great Spa is. And also how dangerous it is. In fact, the movie, the 66 or 67 movie with James Garner, um, Grand Prix, is filmed there at Spa. And there's a very important scene in that particular movie taking place there. Yeah, correct. So, all right, so your dad raced basically road race cars then? Uh, he usually did the uh, slalom courses in a couple, uh, the two hours of Zolder, the four hours of Zolder, the six hours of Zolder, and the 12 hours. Uh huh. Never drove the 24 hours. Okay. Did your dad ever do any rally driving, by any chance? Because that's popular in Europe. He did like, uh, about three of them. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't take for him, so he stayed on the racetrack, mostly in the slalom courses. Okay. So what kind of cars do you... What kind of European cars do you uh, fancy? I mean, what's uh, like some of your favorite European cars? I like to say that my mom raised me properly, so Italian cars... Oh, Italian. Okay, well, hence the name uh, Tazio. In fact, yeah, sure. why don't we talk a little bit about the, the the magazine? We'll jump around a little bit because, you know, we kind of like that's the way it is. The show's kind of freeform. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the magazine and how this 
came to fruition, and particularly now in a, I mean, we're talking a print magazine, okay, a high-end print magazine, and but we're in a digital age. So tell us how this come, how this is going to work out. Well, it's quite simple. Uh, I've been supplying articles for the past more than over a decade to various magazines across the world. Mm-hmm. And, well, I still think, uh, I still get a big kick out of seeing an actual image in print compared to seeing it in a screen or in your phone nowadays. Most people look only at the phone. And it just doesn't do images justice to it in my mind. Well, it's interesting. You're right, because us old schoolers like magazines. And the only problem with the magazine is it takes up a lot of real estate. But tell us a little bit about your magazine, because this one's very special. There's some very unique features in here. Well, one of the reasons I was getting sick and tired of is uh, the lack of quality. And the quality in general has gone down, uh, especially because of the Internet. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people refuse to start reading now. It has to be short and quick, uh, even in text and research uh, or in the images. It can be, well, honestly, just not a good image, and people like it. And I have a problem with that. Uh, just make a good image, make a good story, and work it out. Verify your sources. Talk to the people who are involved if they're still alive uh, to make your text better. And don't make it a short text. The text is what it is. Is it two and a half thousand words? Is it three thousand words? Then that is what it is. Uh, but who wants to read it nowadays on the internet? Because you want to read 500 words in your phone, and that's it. Uh, we have several publications that are now sometimes asking, can you make your sh- uh, text shorter? Like, Why? You're destroying an article. You're destroying heritage. I have a problem with that. So, and they're often going to cheaper prints, cheaper paper. Like, it's not nice to read anymore. Nowadays, you notice when you're talking to collectors, they still enjoy reading good quality, and they want to take the time for it. So, it's a problem with a monthly. Uh, if you're doing a monthly, you don't have the time. And a lot of people, they have stacks of monthly flying, and they don't get around to it. But the quarterly, they want to take their time, and if you, have a, you provide high-grade quality in production-wise, in paper, and in uh, the presentation-wise, people will want to read it. But especially, one of the biggest problems a lot of magazines complain to me, it's like, oh, we have problems uh, selling nowadays because of the quality of the, co- the content. It's quite simple. I don't care what the price of your magazine. Are you charging $5 or $20 or $40? It doesn't matter. If you take everything that's already standing online from press images and it's already standing online for three months and that's what you want to sell them, of course you're not selling a magazine because you're cheating your readers. It's that simple. You know, if you go in a store, you have to spend $20. Two or three of the main stories are press pictures. Your reader will understand, hey, guy, writer, you have not seen that car in person. You have not uh, heard the engine. You have not smelled the fuel burning in it. You have not heard that uh, you have not driven that car yourself. Why would you buy it? Because it's standing online. And that's what we want to make a difference in. We want to bring out great stories with cars that we've actually seen and smelled and driven, or talking to the people that were involved uh, in it, or if it's an interview, or and get the right knowledge out there. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, it's my radio show is very similar. I don't do a lot of commercials. My the whole premise of the show is is I want good quality guests on here because it's about the content and I want people like you that are just as sincere as I am and so there's this analogy there's this parallel here that I see in your magazine because you can't write a short article you can't do a short interview it has to be long and it has to be detailed and just like you said you're dealing with an educated sophisticated affluent Oh, he did, really. Uh, interesting. He'll call back. Okay, good. So, anyway, so where I was going with this, uh, our guest is calling back. So, <laughs> he is, keep in mind now, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, gentleman, uh, Dirk, is calling us from Belgium. Dirk, are you there? I'm sorry, Robert. If I'm after five minutes, the line seems to drop. 
I uh, I don't know. Maybe we're being bugged by the Chinese. Who knows? But <laughs> anyway, uh, I was just the, the analogy I was drawing at is that you know you want quality print. There's there's people out there that are perfectionists like yourself, like myself, that the normal run-of-the-mill stuff is unacceptable. We want better, and I totally relate to that. Your, tell us about your demographics. And then the, other, the next question, part two of that would be, your European readers versus, let's say, the American readers and maybe readers elsewhere in the country. I mean, how you target your 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 readership, your your readers. Okay, so and 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 the differences worldwide. To me, I don't see a difference between a European reader or to an American reader. Okay. Basically, I'm looking towards the readership of uh, people that are well, have a little bit of a budget and are interested in racing cars because we only focus on the racing history, of course. Okay. Uh, but it's people that are looking for knowledge. Uh, they have interest in it, and everybody wants to read a great story, and it's backed up by fact. Right. You know, there's no difference for us to, uh, between a story between a European guy or American guy, or it's the European uh, racing history or American racing history. Yes, we all have our own preferences. Uh, you probably have grown up with IMSA. I've grown up uh, with GT touring cars more. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Uh, but it's we all have uh, interest in both of the cars. The moment we hear them on track, we're hooked. <laughs> oh, absolutely, no question about that. Um, so, where I'm going with this is like the there is a there is a type of reader out there. I mean, and you 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 touched on something that's important, and that is when we get our monthly publications. They just like you said, you just. It takes a while to get you to get around to reading them. Sometimes you don't, and they just pile up. But a quarterly magazine, you do. Just like you said, it's a it becomes like a coffee table magazine, what we call it over here in the United States. And then you pick it up and you read it, and you read the article, and you may go back and read the article again because it's it's great reference, and it's factual. And in your case, because of the photography, the details there, you can so as you're narrating your story. It's backed up with pictures, and that makes it interesting as well. Correct. And one of the key features uh, for us was make it simple. We're not inventing anything new here. We just went for high-grade quality paper. We basically went for art paper instead of typical, well, uh, car magazine paper, which is just, well, cheaper in in brackets. Uh, to give a nice uh, experience of reading, because if you have great paper, it feels like an art book. It feels like uh, a quality coffee table book, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. The same thing. I rather give uh, one story less, but one, uh, but the quality story that we offer has to be well backed by research, and it has to be a good read about it. And same thing. Instead of pushing it into less pa- uh, pages, break it open. Do less uh, images, but better quality images, and give space to the text. It also makes your enjoyment of reading it better. When you write these or come up with these articles, how much of it do you actually write? I mean, you are you yourself as far as the the writing the article, or are you more focused on since your background is photography, the photography aspect of it? I'm running the, the company basically now, and I'm doing the photography uh, for the guys. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm not the only photographer, of course, because uh, we do f- feel that together with my business partner, Johan Dillon, who is the editor-in-chief, mm-hmm. who is a full-time professional writer for more than 20 years mm-hmm. in cars, so he has a background in it. Okay. Um, we also feel he's not the only writer, I'm not the only photographer, because we could fill it up if we really want to, but it's not good to have one only one voice in a, a print magazine. You need to have different voices and different eyes uh, provide quality uh, articles. All the guys that are now working for us, uh, I've known them all for multiple years. I've all sat down with them, had drinks with them, uh, so I'll know, all know them personally. And they all have their own network from over more than a decade or two, two, two decades of experience. We've never been in each other's way creating articles. So we have different voices in it with all uh, interesting backgrounds. And people, they're all our car guys. They're all racing guys. So how do you come up with the, uh, I mean, and there's a lot of stuff out there. So how do you determine the the articles that you're going to do? Do you do, the, are the magazines like a theme? 
uh, do you sit down and have, let's say, like a meeting of the minds, four or five guys get together, journalists, writers, and you say, okay, we want to uh, write a story about this. And is it, uh, and, and because a lot of the older drivers are slowly going to the big racetrack in the sky, we want to get to those people before they're gone so you can hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, the true stories and what actually happened and the details of the cars and and uh, and the races. Correct. Uh, for us, it's important that we still speak with the drivers or team managers or even the race engineers mm-hmm. uh, now that they're still alive because, let's face it, they are disappearing. Uh, but we were, we were looking for a good mix between every type of racing from every era. Uh, we wanted every issue has to have at least one pre-war car story. Because why? Because, well, I'm a big pre-war car uh, fan. Mm-hmm. I love driving them, and it's been going into oblivion. We don't see it uh, so much about pre-war anymore because everybody says, oh, we can't do pre-war because the market is not there. Well, if you don't write about it, of course the market is not there. Uh, but we want 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Every era has great racing car stories. Is it in the form of a test with a car? Is it in the form of an interview with a driver? Uh, is it about a historical archive, a recreation of a, a, a race? You name it. The key part is, is it does not always have to be the typical car that everybody knows. Of course, they will come uh, up as well. The key part is, what is the story? The, uh... It does not need to be a valuable car sometimes. It just needs to be a great story. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, the name Tazio. Okay, and I and I touched on it at the very beginning. How did the name? How did you guys select the name Tazio for this magazine as a title for this magazine? Uh, it had a double reason. Okay, uh, because we said we wanted to make a, a racing car magazine about history of the magazine. Mm-hmm. But we're also doing two editions. We're doing an English version and a German version, which we can reach the German, Swiss, and Austrian market with. Okay. Uh, so we need to find a, a title that works in two languages. Well, an English uh, word in Germany is often difficult, mm-hmm. uh, and German names, they just don't work in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how do you define uh, a global word that can make it easier to, uh, we're talking about racing, without being too bloody cliche? Mm-hmm. Go for your favorite racing car driver. Yeah. Every uh, guy I speak to, if you, if you call your magazine and tells you what it's about, and all of my friends said, of course, Nuvolari, racing, period. It works. So in your experiences traveling around, now, most of your articles and most of the cars that you physically inspect, photograph, and write about, are they located in Europe or are they here in the United States? Or are they all over the world? Usually I travel across Europe and the U.S., mm-hmm. but I also have a great writer working for me in the U.S., uh, great, one of my best friends, uh-huh. uh, Andrew Reed. I've met him on my first uh, year in Montreal in 2004. We've been friends ever since. And yes, uh, long-term contacts across the racing community and the car community as well. So let me ask you this. For issue one, you wrote uh, the interview with uh, Tom Christensen. Okay. When you're writing these articles and you are and you have your little meeting in the minds and you want to write about certain cars, and most of these cars are probably in collections, so do you get into these private collections to look at these cars, to write about them, to drive these cars, or do you catch most of these cars, let's just say, out in the wild at Goodwood or at a Le Mans Classic or a vintage race or something like that? No, I've been working for several private collectors for more than a decade as well, privately for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of them have, have very good trust them. Uh, some of them I even do concours management, so I show the cars at concours in Europe and in the U.S. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so I'm familiar with several collections. You, of course, you go to Goodwood because, let's face it, Goodwood remains one of the most stellar events on the planet. Okay. Uh, but there you talk to the people. You don't do an article there because, well, it doesn't look good. Gotcha. It clearly shows if you may, if you take some pictures in an event, 
uh, for an article, it shows that uh, at an event. To me, that loses value. Okay. Properly done then. Uh, but if it's a new uh, collector you don't know so well, uh, that's where you put up the contact, see if it's open for it, and then you make an appointment to do it properly at another date, somewhere else. And if possible, uh, bring it to a suitable location, uh, and that's what you want to do. So I say, how are you going to do an article about a certain racing car when it's at uh, Goodwood? You cannot drive it there yourself. Uh, you can't do a separate photo shoot with it because you're stuck at the event. Presentation-wise, that's not quality. The um, question I have, and I got here from one of my uh, listeners, is in your experiences in Europe, where do you find which country has probably some of the most exclusive car collections that are just basically very private and kind of hidden away, but yet you've done some interesting articles and storylines on them? Germany. Germany, really? I would have guessed Switzerland. As well. As well. But Germany's just bigger. <laughs> okay, Germany's just bigger. How about Austria? I know a couple of fantastic collections there, but I've not done much that uh, with them so far. How about the Porsche family and the Porsche collection? Because they've got some pretty amazing cars down there in Selamse, and just outside of Salzburg. Yes, correct. Uh, I was actually expecting to see them at an event uh, the two weeks ago in San Moritz. Uh-huh. Uh, but unfortunately, they couldn't make it yet. Uh, but... We're in conversation with hopefully to do something next year. Okay. England. Are there pretty amazing cars and collections in England? Of course there are. Uh, the Brits, they keep everything. They keep everything. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it, uh, it's very typical uh, in the UK. It often passes from uh, the father to the son or stays in the family as long as they can just fight. Um but one of the problems is, of course, with so many uh, magazines being UK-based, uh-huh. a lot of those collections of cars are quite well-known in the uh, publication world, especially in the English magazines. Because most of the British magazines, they stick to British collections. Okay. How about very rare collections? Like in the United States right now, this is a big deal, but I've been around it forever, is barn finds. Are there still some rare cars hidden that are that haven't been discovered or recently discovered that you had the opportunity of doing the articles and being there when the cars were uncovered? There will always be barn finds. Uh, Europe is getting more difficult because, the well, it's small compared to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's face it, there are always people who at certain point become uh, reclusive and start hiding in their cars not come out anymore uh-huh. uh, one of the biggest big finds well finds I did was a few years ago with uh, the auction the French auction house at uh-huh. uh, there was a major collection being rediscovered officially uh, in a French castle called the Bayon collection uh, this was about I'm going to say five years ago now mm-hmm. uh, in the end I shot the entire collection for the auction catalog and the cars back then, when they went on auction, was stupid, crazy world records. It was incredible, some of the cars. And I've been working on a project now for the past two years, uh, because several of the cars have gone, uh, are in restoration progress. But of course, everything is delayed. So I've now uh, talking, spoken with several of the owners, but once some of the high-profile cars are finished, I want to have a shoot them again, but driving. Okay. So far, I've managed to do two, and I'm waiting on six more to finally finish restoration, which they still haven't done. The uh, most significant car that you've had the opportunity to photograph and kind of left an impression on you would be what? Easy. 722. 722. That's the number. Mercedes Benz SLR. Okay. The 1955 Mimilia winning car. And where is that car now? Mercedes-Benz Museum. That's a, Okay, that was the SLR. Wasn't that the one that Sterling Moss drove? Yes. 
selling off this 1955 Miller winning car, 722. Okay. The uh, Bonham's auction's coming up, and I believe one of the the Alfa Romeo that um, Tazio Nuvolari drove is up for auction, correct? Uh, or is it come? That's the one that supposedly he raced in 1935 with an old wore-out Alfa Romeo that Enzo Ferrari whipped up for him, and he actually beat the Germans at Nürburgring with that in uh, against the Silverado. I think it was the, the the Mercedes. No, no, because that car is not for sale. Oh, it's not for sale. Not that car. Not that chassis number. Not that chassis number. Okay, I th- I, I was reading some stuff and I wasn't sure, but. Uh, there, uh, now, some of the auctions that take place in, in Europe, okay, the one that we all know about is um, Monte Carlo. But recently I was reading an article that there was one that took place in St. Moritz, Switzerland. So tell us a little bit about that particular event. Yeah, that was actually two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, it was an RM Sotheby sale uh, together with um, the International St. Moritz Automobile Walker. Um the event actually this year was the first time they re uh, brought the entire week back alive. Okay. It was actually, an historical event from 1929 and 1930. Uh, one of my clients restarted the event about seven years ago as a hill climb, and we grow it out with that. So basically, what we do is we drive the original uh, Berina Pass, which is actually a main road between Switzerland and Italy, and they have. <laughs> agreement from the Swiss government to close it back off and do a hill climb. Uh, but back in the pre-war era, it was multiple events, and this was the first year that they brought back uh, multiple events uh, as well. So we had the week uh, opening up, we had the, uh, uh, the Kilometer Lancé, which was done in 1929. Uh, originally, that was uh, literally the first paved road in the Engadin uh, region. And so there was a, because it was the first paved road from over along, they did uh, kilometer races because it was not a, it was a paved road. Interesting. That road actually still exists nowadays, but the problem is it's a main road and a train crosses nowadays through it, so we, you cannot use that road anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Would be interesting if you're uh, flooring your pre-war car and all of a sudden the train uh, comes through, that you're going to have a problem with braking. We're going to have a problem with braking. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> So, for the first time now, the Swiss government allowed us to use the airport uh, for several hours. So, we could do a kilometer latest on the airport uh, with vintage uh, cars and motorcycles. Now, that's interesting because St. Moritz is really known for skiing. It's a ski resort. I, I remember being there way back when, when I was a kid. So, I never knew that there was an automotive event there. So, here you're talking 90 years later or so, they brought this event back? Yes, the original event was only held two years, uh, oh. 1929 and 1930, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, as you're correct, Samoritz is mostly known as a high-end ski resort area. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that part has never changed for Samoritz. It's still one of the well-known, luxurious uh, ski area resorts uh, in Switzerland and in the world, probably. It is. That's definitely, yes. No question about that. Now, tell us about, uh, is it, see if I pronounce this right, Villa Este? And that's on uh, Lake Como, right? In Switzerland, Italy, somewhere in that area? No, that's Italy, uh, but about, well, five minutes from the Swiss border. Okay. So now, is that is supposedly the oldest uh, concourse in the world? One of the oldest. Okay. Uh, keep in mind, they started in the 1920s up to the 50s. Okay. And then, of course, it disappeared. Right. Uh, and it was brought back in the, I'm going to say, 96, if I remember correctly. Uh, it was brought back by a few Italian people. Uh-huh. And they ran it for the next two, three years, and that's when BMW took it over, actually. And it's now owned by BMW since about 99. Oh, really? Yeah, BMW manages and runs it completely. Okay. Now, do they do an auction there at the Villa Este, or is it just strictly a concourse? And it's like a two- or three-day event, uh, correct? 
it's a norm, uh, normally it's about a three-day event for the entrance. Right. Uh, arrival is continuing on Friday, and uh, uh, first day concour privately at Villa Deste on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And normally on Sunday they go to one kilometer down the road to Villarba, which is a public day. Okay. Why they go down the road? Villarba it's a big park. They have more space because it's Villa Deste. The crowds there's some space for the crowds. It's that simple. Okay. Uh, normally, there's an auction there as well. Uh, normally, every two years, also run by Arm Sotheby's. Okay. Now, do you do you cover these events too? And do, will these articles or stories from Villa d'Este and Saint Moritz will they appear in your magazine in Tazio? They will be in a smaller segment. Okay. Uh, we do have an event segment in the back, and we place some uh, event reports, more event reports, on the website. Because, let's face it, do you really want to read uh, 50 pages on events? That's true. You want them in there because you want to know what's happening a bit, but it's extra pages. It's not the key part of the magazine. Because, let's face it, with events, you have to compete more with the Internet. Uh, Okay. If you're a quarterly magazine, what's the point of fighting with that? This is true. Because... Literally during the event, you can already follow what's happening. So the magazine is a quarterly, and it features unique stories about unique cars, primarily racing cars. How many pages is there in the publication, in the actual magazine? We now start with the first issue, which came out two weeks ago in San Moritz. Mm-hmm. Uh, with 155 pages. Uh, our goal is to grow towards about maximum 200 pages, mm-hmm. mainly so we are secure below one kilogram of weight, because if we go over one kilogram of weight, shipping prices double. I got gotcha. Okay. And how many articles would be in there on an average? So if you've got 200 pages, how many actual magazine articles, storylines with unique cars and unique... An average uh, of nine. Pardon me? An average of nine. An average of nine, really? Okay. And then, what other stories? What other? What? What else? What else makes up the composition of the magazine? To give you an idea, uh, in issue one, uh, of course, our lead story of about eighteen pages is on Nuvolari. Okay. If you call Fazio, you have to do your opening story on him. You have no choice. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, but we decided instead of doing one article on Nuvolari, which is, well, not possible, we said uh, in the first four issues we're going to highlight every time a certain segment of his life. Uh, like in the first uh, issue, we talk about uh, Nürburgring uh, race 1935, because it's one of the most famous races that he won, which technically he could not win. Uh, then this year, uh, also, yes, 100 years of Avus. Avus was a famous race around the outskirts of uh, Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have 100 years of Spa Francorchamps this year. So every magazine is talking about Spa Francorchamps because it's still an active racetrack. But I haven't seen a single European magazine anywhere talk about 100 years of Avus. Interesting. Talk about Avus because it was a very big race before the war and after the war. And they tore it down in late 90s. Interesting. I'm not real familiar with that myself. I don't. So give us a little. We got a couple minutes. Talk, tell us a little bit about it, real quick and short. Uh, basically, it was a mad dash by the German squad. They basically made uh, two corners and two very long straight. Right. And they just have at it. Go racing flat out in a straight, take a very dangerous sharp corner. Come back on the other straight, uh, basically on the, on the highway. Uh, and at the, uh, the main entrance, it was a half oval track there, basically, uh, with a very steep banking. But it was a brick banking, of course, back then, because it was made in the 30s. Was it also used as a test track, or was it designed strictly for racing? It was designed strictly for racing, basically. Okay. How about race car drivers? Are you going to have articles, uh, other articles about race car drivers that are still around? Yes, of course. Uh, like in issue one, we talk with uh, Tom Christensen, uh, Christensen on his career. Mm-hmm. Tom Christensen, of course, is uh, nowadays Mr. Le Mans, who won nine, nine times out of uh, 18 entries in Le Mans. Uh, makes him one of the 
most successful race car drivers ever there. Uh-huh. Uh, our American editor-in-chief actually spoke with him over the phone before, and afterwards we went to Denmark to visit him in person. Interesting. Who is the oldest race car driver you have ever interviewed? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, well, let's just say somebody from the golden era. You know, like Sterling Moss. Did you ever have the opportunity to... Um, yes. Obviously, I... It was been several years ago. We had an interview once with Sterling Moss. Uh, also, I think maybe 10 years ago, uh, we once sat down with Phil Hill. Oh, wow. Phil Hill, good. Yeah, great American driver. Yeah. He was such a super nice guy. Every time you spoke with him, he was such. He took the time for you. He was so friendly guy, uh, and he had a great story. Uh, top driver, uh, and one of the drivers, of course, he's uh, surely missed. Interesting story. I was at the twenty-four hour race in Daytona sometime in I'm going to say the mid to late nineties, and I was in a pit, and I'm, tr- I'm not sure whose race car it was. I can't remember. And Phil Hill was standing next to me. I didn't know it at the time because it was in the middle of the night. It's a 24-hour race where everybody was all bundled up because it does get cold in Florida here. And somebody said, hey, that's Phil Hill standing next to you. I was so, I don't want to say starstruck, but I was like, I, 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 uh, couldn't bring my, I wanted to just say hi and, and shake hands, and I, could, and I was just like uh, dumbfounded. I can't, and to this day, I think about that, and I'm going, wow. Because I've had his son, Derek, on my show a couple times. And, uh, and I know Derek a little bit. He's a nice guy, too. And, uh, but his dad was just, uh, just an amazing driver. And uh, so, I mean, we've interviewed Dan Gurney. We've had Mario Andretti on here. And, and uh, I've talked to Jackie Stewart. I haven't had the opportunity to interview him yet. But uh, have you had the opportunity to interview Jackie Stewart? Unfortunately, not yet. Uh, for the next issue, we have Alan Jr. Uh, with an interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something I'm looking forward to. Uh, the interviews already happened uh, two weeks ago in the U.S. Unfortunately, I have not been there yet because uh, we can still not travel to the U.S. It will change in the next few weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it's something with uh, another guy. I would love to meet in person myself because uh, he's has a great career. Mm-hmm. I've read so much about him as well, but... It's always more fun when you can meet them in person, of course. Well, I would imagine when you go, like, what, what's one of your favorite events here in the United States? Now, I, everybody, one of our fa- two of our favorite events in the U.S. here is obviously Amelia Island and Pebble Beach. Those are my two favorite venues that I go to. So, for you, coming from Europe, which are your two favorite ones here in the United States? Those two I always do every year normally. Okay, uh, guaranteed. Montreux is Montreux. It's a half. It's a place you have to experience. Yes. You have to go there. Yes. Uh, every year, it will still blow your mind what you will see there and who will you meet and you name it. But it's a hectic, hectic week. Uh, you can forget about seeing everything. It's not possible. So if you had to draw, and do that. But if I have to choose for fun and a more relaxed time and still seeing fantastic cars. I love uh, Amelia Island. Amelia Island, yeah, no question. All right, so let's draw an analogy. Tell us about, um, we got a few minutes left. Goodwood, and I've never been there, but the Goodwood Speed Festival and Monterey. Give us some parallels. Well, uh, if you say Goodwood, you have to make a decision between Festival Speed or Revival. Oh, okay, that's true. There's two events. Yeah, hands down Revival. And Revival also beats Monterey. Really? So what's the difference between the Speed Festival and the Revival? The Revival, it's proper racing. It's really proper racing. But also the atmosphere, uh, the show that goes around it, uh, the people that are dressed up in periods, uh, especially even if you have paddock tickets, you're not dressed up in one of the periods that is allowed, you don't come in, even if you have a ticket. Really? So, yes. So you can be dressed from the 30s to the 70s. But yes, if you have a costume on and uh, you're wearing a jacket and you don't have a bow tie or a necktie, okay, go buy one. You're not coming in, even if you write tickets. Done. Interesting. That's just so much fun there. The festival is a different crowd. Uh, they call it the hill climb, but yeah, well, it's the driveway. It's not really hill climb. Uh, 
Uh-huh. Don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic show. You see great cars from different kind of eras. But it's a different type of crowd that comes there. I enjoy most, I have always much more fun at the revival. Okay. Just because the atmosphere, the dressing up, and it's actual racing. They go flat out, proper motorsport. The Le Mans Classic, isn't that something they do every two years at, uh, at Le Mans? Every two years, and it's well worth a trip. You know, if you're in the back of a track uh, near the, the Indianapolis corner, for instance, uh-huh. about four or five in the morning in group uh, plateau five, where you have the the night of coming by, you hear them coming down the straight, full flat out, and also you see them coming in the floodlight, you see flames spitting out. It's fantastic. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, Dirk, we are up against the clock, so here's what I want you to do before I say goodbye. I want you to tell people real quick how they can find out more about Tazio Magazine. Well, we have, of course, now active since uh, we opened up two three weeks ago on uh, Instagram and Facebook. Just type in uh, Tazio Magazine, mm-hmm. or you can find us on TazioMagazine.com uh, and drop us a note. Sounds good. So the next time you're going to be in the United States is when? At the current uh, way it's going, that will be Amelia Island again. Amelia Island. Well, I'll tell you what. I look forward to meeting you at Amelia Island. We'll have to make that uh, come come to happen for us, so to speak. And in the meantime, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars in Florida. Between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you're in Belgium. So my guess is it's almost 2 p.m., 2 a.m. in the morning, right, for you? It's 2 a.m. right now, indeed. Okay. Well, Dirk, it was a pleasure having you on the show. All the best on your magazine. Thank you very much for hanging out with us here. Uh, Enjoy the stories. We look forward to having you on again sometime in the near future. And uh, uh, best of luck to you. Okay. Thanks so much, Robert. We'll see you in the Florida next next year. You got it. In March, we'll we'll all meet at uh, Amelia Island. I want to thank my special guest, uh, Dirk de Jaeger. He's from Belgium. He hung out with us for a little bit this evening, calling at uh, 1 a.m., between 1 and 2 a.m. in the morning here from Belgium. I'm delighted to have him on the show. He's got a great magazine out there. It's called Tazio Magazine. You can read all about it. So, ladies and gentlemen, again, for the most legendary and fascinating names, or fascinating and legendary names in motorsports and music, be sure and check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget... Next month, this coming month, October, Rocktober, we've got musical guests coming on, so you definitely don't want to meet that. We've got a whole bunch of people lined up. You never know who's going to come on the air. Is Bobby there on the phone? Do we have him on the phone, Bob? Is Bobby still on the line? Uh, Tommy? Nope. Gone? Yes? No? Maybe? Bobby, are you there? I'm here. Hello? Nope. Nope. Uh, we got... Oh, wait, I lost the Skype. Oh, well, we tried. But at any rate... No. So, <laughs> Bobby, are you there? I'm there. How's it working? Working okay? Sounds good to me. Loud and clear. Good interview. All right. Good interview. Well, thank you very much, Bobby. I uh, look forward to seeing you here in a few minutes when I get home. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in. Don't forget, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.